Oh, how quickly the tables can turn. Oh, how quickly the tables can turn. I learned that, that lesson the hard way at my part-time job uh, back in college. I used to work for Sainsbury's Supermarkets. It's a supermarket chain back in the UK. I was a checkout boy. One day, myself and my friends, my fellow colleagues who were working a shift, we noticed a new worker in the store uh, wearing the uniform that we were wearing. Clearly, he looked like one of us, and he was having a really rough first day. Uh, customers were coming up to him asking, Where, where's this, where's that? And, of course, he didn't really know. He flustered around. And being typical nasty teenage boys, we found it more amusing to watch than to actually go and help him. Later, we saw this guy out in the car park, and it wasn't a, f a flat car park, the supermarket car park. It kind of sloped down at one side. So we knew from experience you couldn't possibly push more than five trolleys up the slope to get to where they should be in one go. Of course, this new guy, he didn't know that. And again, rather than helping him out, we just watched as he tried to push 10 trolleys up the slope, only to watch them slide away down the road again and again and again. Now, by this point, this new guy, he wasn't very happy because he had noticed us noticing him without us actually going over to help him, to our shame. But we told ourselves, this guy's pretty hopeless. He'll be gone in a week. It would be an amusing week, but just a week. Or we were just about to leave our shift, me and my friends, when our supervisor called us over. And she said, gents, I need to introduce someone to you, and stepped out the new guy wasn't wearing his uniform anymore. He was in a suit. Suddenly, we realized that falling around all day with this guy, he was not just any new guy. He was the new general manager for the store. He was our new boss, spending the first day wearing our uniform, just working with the worker bees on the ground to get a sense of things. And let's just say that our working shifts for the rest of that week, they had less to do with checkouts and more to do with waste disposal. <laughs> How the tables can turn. As we come to our verses in Luke this morning, we meet Jesus in the midst of his trial. His enemies appear to have got their way as Jesus is falsely condemned. As we will see, he is led away to die. And yet even in the midst of his great suffering, Jesus makes it clear here, the tables will turn. That Jesus' enemies are actually the ones to be pitied, not him. Well, our opening verses give us a helpful recap of Jesus' trial so far. Pontius Pilate, uh, the Roman governor in charge, he comes back to Jesus' accusers with his verdict. Our first point, Jesus, the innocent. Read with me from verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. That's what we saw last week, how the chief priests, the rulers, the crowds in Jerusalem, they had turned against Jesus, gathered against him. Uh, the opportunity given in Judas's betrayal, how they had captured him away from the other crowds, given them their own uh, preliminary trial. But they knew that for Jesus to die as they so hoped for, well, it couldn't come by their hands. 
Uh, they were an occupied people at this time under Roman governors, and so it was only the Romans who had the authority to sentence a man to death. And so they bring Jesus now before Pilate, the Roman governor. And as Pilate says here in verse 14, they had accused Jesus before him of misleading the people. They, they painted Jesus before Pilate as an insurrectionist, an enemy of Caesar. Totally false charge. I mean, Jesus taught his disciples, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. He, he promoted them to, to honor the emperor wherever they possibly could in honor of the God who had put him in his place. Well, Pilate saw through their false charges. See verse 14 again. And after exa examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. But not only that, see how Pilate goes on, verse 15, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Again, last week we saw how Pilate, having learned that King Herod of Galilee was in town, the king of Jesus' home region of Galilee, well, Pilate was quick to, to pack Jesus off to him as a political sidestep of sorts. Pilate didn't want to be encumbered with this trial, uh, with the risk that having found Jesus innocent, He'd be accused of going soft on a man accused of treason. He'd be remanded by his own superiors. So, so off to Herod, Jesus went. Pilate thought he had got rid of him that way. Herod, in turn, questioned Jesus, demanded some miraculous signs for his own satisfaction. And when Jesus refused, Herod and his soldiers mocked him and beat him. But Herod didn't find Jesus guilty of anything. He just sent him straight back to Pilate's. A further evidence of Jesus' innocence, as Pilate says here. Verse 15, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Pilate knows Jesus is an innocent man. And yet he still has one trick up his sleeve to appease Jesus' accusers for the sake of his own political well-being. He tells the crowd, verse 16, what he will do. I will therefore punish and release him. Pilate hoped to set Jesus free, but only after punishing him to satisfy his accusers. The, the 40 lashes minus one. It was believed by the Romans to be the safe amount of torturous whipping any healthy man could endure before physically dying. Uh, the whip that they used, it was made of, of, uh, of course, strings with bits of bone uh, and shards of metal so that when it came into contact with the skin, it would dig in and it would tear away at your flesh. Don't think of something as tame as a scratch from a cat, more like being clawed by a bear. And, and that is Pilate's verdict for innocent Jesus. Look, I will have him whipped within an inch of his life, and then I will let him go. It's not exactly justice, is it? But Pilate hopes it will be enough to satisfy Jesus' accusers, and he is wrong. Our second point, Jesus the innocent put in place of the guilty. See how the crowd responds to Pilate, verse 18? But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. And we know from Mark's account that Pilate had made a habit of releasing a prisoner back to the Jews during the time of Passover, which it is now. It's just another one of his political ploys to try and keep the hordes at bay. Mark 15, verse 6, we're told, now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. But see who they 
ask the release for? Uh, not Jesus, who Pilate knows is innocent, but Barabbas, the guilty. And Barabbas was as guilty as could be. Now, Luke wants us to appreciate the deeply painful irony of these verses here. They tell Pilate, away with this Jesus, which is just shorthand for, away with his life, kill him. And in his place, we want Barabbas back. And what are we told about Barabbas? Verse 19, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. What was the reason that the elders gave to Pilate to say Jesus deserves to die? He's a troublemaker. He's a rabble rouser. He's misleading the people. He's a threat to Caesar's rule. And that is exactly what Barabbas was, an insurrectionist who had made good on his wicked plans because he himself was guilty of murder. Barabbas, whose name literally means son of the father. And this is the son that the elders choose, a lawbreaker in God's eyes, a man with blood on his hands. This is the one they want in the place of God's righteous son, guilty of no crime. And Pilate can't believe it, verse 20. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. They insist that Jesus takes the punishment that Barabbas was facing, crucifixion. It was only meant for insurrectionists like Barabbas. A Roman citizen could not be crucified. It was too shameful a punishment. It was reserved for slaves and foreigners who opposed Roman rule. It was such a painful way to die that the Latin word for cross is actually at the heart of the English word that we use today for unbearable pain. Can anyone guess what it is? Excruciating. Cruck. Crux in the middle, excruciating. Well, that's where it comes from. Pilate knew that Jesus did not deserve to die, and certainly not in this way. So a third time, verse 22, a third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Pilate's attempts to free Jesus are futile. Verse 23, they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. Pilate caves into the pressure of the crowd for fear of his own reputation. He, he just washes his hands of Jesus, knowing him to be innocent, and hands him over to be crucified. And just in case we've missed the point Luke wants to make here, he repeats it for us in verse 25. Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Again, we're reminded as Pilate capitulates to the will of Jesus' enemies, the truly guilty party Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the murderer, goes free. Only because Jesus, now the innocent one, stands in his place under his sentence. Of death. Have you ever heard of the term whipping boy? Maybe we feel like a whipping boy at work or at college sometimes, but do you know where it comes from? It, it, it comes from a practice that began in England in the 17th century. Uh, back then, the royal household faced a bit of a, a dilemma. 
the children of the king needed a proper education. But like all other school-aged children, they were prone to being naughty at times. And normally, when a child was naughty in school, especially back then in the 17th century, the teacher would bring out the equivalent of the rotan and just thrash away. But no school teacher in England dared to treat the future king or queen of England that way. Because they knew that these kids were going to grow up one day and they were going to inherit the throne. And, and the teachers, they kind of liked their heads where they were, attached to their bodies. They didn't want these little royal children growing up bearing grudges. And so to solve this problem, along came the whipping boy. For every prince in the classroom, a boy was just brought in off the streets. For every princess in the classroom, a girl was brought in off the street. And they just stood in the corner during the class, and every time one of the royal children misbehaved, their whipping boy took a beating for it. And the hope was that the royal children would be shamed into behaving just to save their substitute from suffering for their sakes. It was a deeply unfair and cruel practice. But it is that kind of unjust suffering that we are seeing here. Jesus, the innocent son, condemned, beaten, sent off to be crucified in the place of Barabbas, the guilty son. Verse 26, and as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Yes, Jesus has not been crucified yet, but he is already so physically encumbered that another man is called to carry his cross behind him. Uh, Jesus' torture, it began the night before. Before his first trial with the elders, he had been beaten. And then after Pilate had released him for crucifixion, he was beaten by the soldiers again. And so by this point, Jesus, with a crown of thorns on his head, bleeding, he is a physical wreck, staggering collapsing on the road. He wasn't actually carrying the full cross, just what is referred to as the patabulum, the horizontal beam to which his wrists would be nailed. And yet Jesus is so weak by this point, Luke tells us he cannot carry that weight. Another man is forced to come behind him and carry the cross beam for him. Now Luke gives us this detail, not because he wants us to focus on Simon of Cyrene, we're told very little about this guy. No, Luke wants us to appreciate just how weak and how vulnerable Jesus is here. He's beaten, he's bruised, he's bleeding, he's staggering toward the cross that he did not deserve, suffering so greatly, yet guilty of no crime. Many follow behind him. Some even mourn for Jesus. They weep as they see him suffer. But as Jesus sees them weeping for him, he has some shocking words for them. Our third point, Jesus says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. Verse 27, and there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem. Let's notice, first of all, how he addresses his mourners, these women, daughters of Jerusalem. They represent the city. 
of God's people, the ones who are ultimately now rejecting Jesus as God's king for them as they push him toward the cross on which he will die. And Jesus has already said some very hard words against Jerusalem in Luke. Here's one example, Luke 13, 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. Well, here, Jerusalem is making good on its reputation as they send not a mere prophet to his death, but God's own innocent son, their rightful king. And yet see what Jesus says to these daughters of Jerusalem as they cry for him? Verse 28, do not weep for me. Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Jesus is walking down death row. He's about to face the brutality of the cross, and yet amazingly, he tells them, don't feel sorry for me. Feel sorry for yourselves and your children. See what he says as he warns in verse 29, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Now, I realize that that is a painful statement for some of us to hear today. Uh, particularly for any women amongst us who have endured the pain of childlessness. Jesus is not making light of your burden here. But he is making a shocking statement to these women who mourn for him, these daughters of Jerusalem, because for them, as God's people, uh, the birth of children was a sign of God's blessing upon them as Israel. Remember what he promised Abraham all those years before, that through him and his offspring... God would make of them a great nation to be his own out of all the earth. And so for Israel, the birth of a child, it wasn't just special as we would consider it today. It was a sign to them of God keeping his promise of blessing. But now Jesus says a time is coming that's going to be so devastating for Jerusalem that that the blessings will become like a curse. The women with children will be worse off than those without. Verse 30, Jesus continues, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. He says to his mourners, as he says, I pity you, he quotes from the prophet Hosea, what we had in our Old Testament reading, where where God spoke a word of judgment against his wayward people and how he would use another nation to discipline them for their sin. He warned them through Hosea that judgment would be so severe on that day that they would prefer death to life, that they would call for the mountains to bury them rather than live another day. And Jesus takes that prophecy now and he speaks it against these daughters of Jerusalem. He knows that his suffering now, though it might be great, only guarantees Jerusalem's greater suffering to come. And that's what he alludes to in our final verse. So he explains how his suffering is connected to theirs. He's just spoken about God's judgment on sin from Hosea, and now we're given this cryptic line, verse 31. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now we'd think that they here is talking about the people, right? The Romans, the chief priests, the crowds, 
sending Jesus to the cross here for if they do these things? And yet Jesus hasn't actually mentioned any of those people as he's warned the women who mourn for him. The only person he's actually referred to so far is God and his word of judgment against his people from Hosea. That is who Jesus is speaking of here as well in verse 31. Not the people who are leading him, pushing him to his crucifixion, but God himself. For Jesus knows that it is God himself working through their evil scheme sovereignly in his judgment. He is the one doing these things to the wood which is green. Verse 31. Now let me ask you, have you ever tried to burn wood when it's green, when it's healthy, when it's full of moisture? Have you ever been out camping in the jungles in Malaysia? Probably not, you get eaten by some horrible creature. (laughs) But back where I'm from, you know, the far tamer woods in the UK, myself and my family, we would camp out on the occasional weekend, but they were very cruel with us, me and my sister. We weren't allowed any creature comforts like a handphone or, or, or a gas stove to cook our dinner on. No, we were going back to nature. So all I had was a tent, a sleeping bag, and a box of matches. I'd be sent out into the woods, go and find some sticks to make a fire. But all I would find usually is green, moist wood, because it rains all the time in England. I'd find this wood that's still covered in moss. It's alive, it's it's healthy, it's full of moisture. And and my mum and dad would find it very amusing as I'd bring these sticks back and I'd put them down and I'd desperately try to light them and it's not working. There's no fire. And there'd be no dinner for me that night. (laughs) That's the point that Jesus is trying to make here. It is so rare for wood that is green to burn, to be consumed. It's still full of life. It's still full of moisture. And yet right now, what do these women who mourn for Jesus, what do they see before them? God's son, who never sinned, who never deserved to die, being consumed in suffering. As he takes the place of Barabbas, the guilty son, it was Barabbas who was to go to the cross to pay for his sins. But instead they see Jesus suffering in the place of that lawbreaker as the wood that is green, that should never have been consumed, never guilty of a crime against God or his fellow man, but instead he still went. Because in his great love, he laid down his life as it was his father's will, as God the Father at the cross, as Jesus died, poured out on him the judgment. He, not that he deserved it, but that we deserve for our every sin. For every time I know I've fallen short, and we've fallen short of of loving God our creator and loving our fellow man as we know we should. And Jesus' point here is, if God takes sin that seriously, that he actually in himself deals with it in the person of his son who had no sin so that we might escape it, If God consumed the wood that is green, that is innocent, Jesus goes on in verse 31, what will happen when it is dry? 
he uses this greater to lesser argument. If the wood which is green is consumed, how much more will wood that is dry? Will those who can easily be consumed, who are actually guilty of sin, how much more will God visit his judgment on them? And we just have to look back to see the truth of Jesus' warning to these mourning daughters of Jerusalem here. Yes, he went to the cross to pay for the sins of the world as he knew he would. But 40 years later, the Jerusalem who rejected their king and so sent him to that cross suffered. As the Roman armies laid siege to the city for more than a year, and hundreds of thousands, men, women, and children, perished just as Jesus warned. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Weep for those who right now reject me as their savior and their king and so perish for their sins away from me. Well, two observations as we close. Firstly, we've seen that the cross means God takes sin seriously. I remember Don Carson sharing a story uh, when he was speaking at KVBC, the Clang Valley Bible Conference, a few years ago. He, he had, years before, he had been teaching for uh, a few months in Paris, and he had a, a friend uh, from France who was living in Paris at the time who he hadn't seen since his college years, and so they arranged to meet up. And they had dinner together, and they had such a good time catching up, and Dom was around for a while, so he said, well, let's do this again. And so they put a date in the diary for dinner again the following week. But as they left the restaurant that first night, Don couldn't help but notice that his, his friend from college said goodbye and then headed straight into the shadiest part of town, into the red light district. And Don noticed it. The following week, they met up, they had dinner again, they decided to meet up again. They said their goodbyes. And again, his friend left on and went straight into the red light district. Now, by the third time of Don and his friend having dinner, Don felt he could bring up this issue that he had noticed. And he, he asked his friend over dinner that third time, why is it that after we've had dinner, you go straight into that shady part of town? You're a married man. You've got kids. And his friend, with very little shame, said straight back to him, yeah, I know, it's all right. I I'm hooking up with other women. And Don asked him, well, what if your wife finds out? And he replied, well, what she doesn't know can't hurt her. And then Don responded, well, oh, what about God? God can see what you're doing. Doesn't that concern you? And his friend replied to him, in a French proverb, c'est adieu de pardonner. It is God's business to forgive. It is God's business to forgive. Many think like this today, that if there is a God and a creator who in any sense we might be accountable to, he doesn't actually care a great deal about our wrongdoing. He's like a benevolent grandpa. He gives sweets to his grandchildren whether they are naughty or nice. And Jesus sets the record straight for us here. The cross means God takes sin seriously. Sin that I know I'm guilty of, that I know we're all guilty of. 
the offense of living as we see fit in God's world without right reference to him as our creator and our Lord and all of the suffering that issues from it as a result. Pretending we are the rulers in his place and messing up our world as a result. The crime of that sin is so serious that God gave his one and only son to die so that we the guilty might hope to be forgiven and go free. That lawbreakers like Barabbas might go free only because Jesus, the innocent one, took the penalty for him. Why would we ever think that God doesn't take sin seriously when it took the cross to save us from our sins? Why would we ever think that we ourselves can somehow despite our sin, work our way back to God with the little bit of good that we can do when it took the cross to save us from our sins. Friends, we can't. It took the perfect blood of his son to make full satisfaction for our transgressions. And so our only hope, as it always has been, is to throw ourselves on Christ's mercy, to acknowledge him as our saviour and king who suffered for us. But if we resist... We resist his lordship and that great salvation he won for us at the cross. If we reject him as Jerusalem did, well, so like them, we will pay the price for sin ourselves. That brings us to our second observation. The cross means the tables will turn in the end. Jesus' enemies were certain they had won. Uh, Pilate gave him over. Barabbas was released and Jesus took his place as a condemned man on the road. The women mourning for him, feeling so sorry for this Jesus suffering innocently, looking like he had come to such a miserable end. Jesus knew better. And he knew the cross was the suffering he would endure before his glory. He knew that, yes, he would suffer, he would die for sin, but that sin and death had no hope of holding him. He would suffer for a moment. The suffering would be great. But then, as he said he would, he would be raised, exalted as God's king for us all. And it's in his resurrection that we now, who trust in him, have the hope, have the promise as we see his new life. Our sins are forgiven. Like him, though we die, yet will we live and enjoy God's rest, having been saved in his son. But we still wait for that great day. We still live in this fallen, sinful world that opposes Christ as king and so will oppose us who trust on and follow him. See, just as these mourning women, they pitied Jesus in his weakness, there will be those who feel sorry for us as we seek to live with Christ as Lord as we put him first in our relationships. And so, despite the pressure we might be facing, we refuse to date someone who does not share our love for him. Despite the mocking we might face, we choose to sacrifice financially for the gospel and say, I will not enjoy those other creature comforts my mates are enjoying. We sacrifice for his gospel instead. We seek to share it when we know we will be opposed for it because we know the love of Christ And we long for others to know him too, but as we do those things for him in love, our friends, our colleagues, our family, they may well feel sorry for us. They may well pity us. I think these hopeless Christian losers who can't face life without a crutch like Jesus, and when the heat is on, we can start to believe 
that they're right. You know, somehow we're worse off with Christ than without him. When you are tempted to think that way, remember what Jesus says here as he suffers so greatly for our sakes. He tells these mourning women, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. These words of judgment were not just for Jerusalem in her sin, but for all our world who for the moment rejects Christ as king. We find these words again. Revelation 6, 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slaves and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Jerusalem's judgment was just a foretaste of that great day when God will bring all to account and he has put our world on notice by raising his son from the dead, stating, my king is on his throne. He will return and there is only hope for forgiveness with him. Apart from him, there is no hope. One day, friends, the tables will turn and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord, whether in joy or under his fearsome judgment. So can I encourage you, on the base of what Christ says here, stand firm for him, even when the world pities you and mocks you for it. Trust that as Jesus' sufferings turn out for glory, so will yours as you live for him today, and so are found faithful in him on that final day. May that spur us on to love and serve Christ now, whatever tomorrow might bring. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, both encouraging and so challenging. We thank you that in your son, you did what we could not hope to do as he suffered, though innocent, taking our place as the guilty, that we might have the hope of forgiveness, of life and the rest that we were made for, rather than sitting under your judgment. Father, pray that you would help us to take what Jesus says here seriously as he tells his Mourners, do not mourn for me, but mourn for yourselves and for your children. Help us to be ever mindful of that day to come, that we would cling to Christ as our only hope, and we would be seeking to tell others of him, that they might have that same hope, even in the face of ridicule that we may well face. Lord, strengthen us to be knowing and delighting in Christ as Lord, and so living for the day of his kingdom. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.